Okay, now if you are able, please stand with me and join in the reading. I'll be reading starting uh, first at Exodus 2, verse 23, through the end of Exodus, verse 3, and then flipping over to John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59. So there's two parts to this. And I'm reading from the ESV, and it begins, During those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. A bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the, Egyptian, the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and, I, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall go to God on this mountain. Go, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, J of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to you 
listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and that he will let you go. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, that when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And now we shift over to John chapter 8, verse 56 to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. What a joy to work alongside you as the chairman of our board. Thank you for reading that. So I ask you today, we begin with the question, what is God like? How would you answer that? You know, the Numbers seem to be rather conclusive that most Americans believe in God. They would say there's something out there, but if you take it just one step further, can you tell me something about him? What's he like? I think a lot of us freeze up. Or maybe we fall into the trap of describing God as just another one of our friends, kind of much like the kind of people we'll be watching the game with later this afternoon, or the large section of American society would self-identify as agnostic, right? That there's probably a God out there, but whether or not we can know anything about him is not for me to discern. Or the long intellectual tradition uh, of deism, right? That yeah, there's an impersonal force out there, but that's all we can say. I hope that's not where we are at. I hope we say that God, actually tells us something about himself. That for the big God out there, right, what we really need is for him to self-disclose, for him to come down, right, our small minds that can only hold so much, we forget even what we knew yesterday, that if God would come down and show us what he wants us to know about him, boy, that would be a wonderful thing. And we get that today in this famous chapter of the burning bush that doesn't burn. What's God like? Well, we have it here, and I hope that the faithful, right, those of us who've entrusted ourselves to this God in Christ, we acknowledge Christ as king, realize who this God is that we worship, and why he's worthy of our obedience, and that when we obey him, we in fact flourish and have our purpose. Now, contextually, let's just uh, review the last couple of weeks, where Exodus chapter three, what's happening? Say, things have not been good up to this point. Uh, that the Israelites are oppressed. Um, and if you remember, why is this important? Because God, the one story of the Bible is that God's redeeming a people for himself. He said, I'm gonna save a group of people, my covenant community, my covenant family, and the relationship that I have with them is going to show all the nations what it's like to worship the true God, and that God's gonna establish that people in a particular land. 
to what we would now call the socio-political state of Israel, right? So God makes that promise all the way back to Abraham hundreds of years before Moses. I'm gonna redeem a people and I'm gonna establish them in this land. But when we open Exodus, that promise seems so far away. That far from God's people looking like they're progressing towards that end, it looks like they're regressing. They're more oppressed that Pharaoh's having his way. He's bullying God's people. There's no leadership. How is God gonna deliver on his promises? And it's been so long. Well, last week we got a little hint, right? That Moses, God's chosen instrument, is gonna be the man to lead the people out back towards the promised land and that God would fulfill his promise. So we turn our attention now to this famous chapter, chapter three, and really it's a big pivot in the book. We go from God's people being oppressed to God delivering his people and establishing them in the land, fulfilling his promise. Now what I want us to see primarily in this great text is what God is like. Now why do I stress this? American evangelicalism has suffered for some years. Uh, I think the pendulum went so far uh, towards the point of uh, practical application, right? You're gonna preach, you gotta make it practical for the people, you know, make sure they can walk away with a few nuggets so they know what to do this week. And we've went so far to kind of giving these practical pointers, which are important in a sermon, that what we have very few examples of are sermons about God. You say, after all, that should be the main focus of our meditation, right? What is God like? Who is he? Behold your God. Do you see him? And today is a great chance for us to do that. So can we see God? Do we see what he's like? Do we see what he wants us to know about him? And then how do we live in light of that? So point number one here, Exodus chapter three, is gonna tell us who God is informs how we think and behave. Now this too is a passion of mine, because people say, well, you know, the attributes of God, this kind of theology, is there anything more impractical than, than studying these aspects of God? And what I'd like us to see is there's nothing more practical than understanding the God that we serve. You say, whether or not you like theology or not, you have to realize everybody's a theologian. The deists are theologians, the agnostics are theologians, the atheists are theologians, they're just bad theologians say we need to be good theologians and what it means to be a good theologian is to see who God is, to see how he's revealed himself. We call this God's gracious condescension. Say again, how are we gonna learn about the high and lofty God unless he in his kindness comes down to our level in history and says this is what I'm like. This is what you need to know about me and as you embrace that and obey me in this, your life then will be able to take, you'll take practical steps. So there's nothing more practical than grasping who God is. Now another component of this, so I think too American evangelicalism, is, uh, American evangelicalism has suffered from small God theology. God is your buddy, pastor as joke teller, entertainer, Billy Joel song, I am the entertainer. So we have a small God theology, he's just like your pal. You say, no, what we wanna see is a big God theology. There's a big God who controls all things. He's called us to himself, and in light of that, we have hope. Thank goodness, nothing against our friends, but thank goodness, God isn't like our pal. Say, God is our creator and maker and sustainer, that everything happens under his will. You say, this is the God we worship, and let's not fall into the trap of uh, thinking of him as just another created thing. So let's turn our attention to Exodus 3. What are a few things that we learn about our God? What is he like? First see that God's timing 
is perfect for his faithful. I add that last part, for his faithful, it's important. Say, if you've not entrusted in this God through Jesus, you say you're just kind of thinking about that. I can't say that God's timing is perfect for you because you don't think about God. You're kind of just in, you know, going it your own way. But for God's people, right, we say those of us who've come to him on his terms in Jesus, if Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, teaches us nothing it, 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 but, but this, I mean, this is so central that God's timing is perfect. He does what he wants in his good time. How many years have the Israelites, you remember by the time we get to Exodus 3.1, how many years have the Israelites kind of been, you know, in Egypt, displaced and confused? You remember 480 years. That's a long time. We think when somebody makes a promise to us and they don't immediately follow through, say, in a day or a week, you know, that they've forgotten about it or that they're dishonest, you could imagine how some of these Israelites may have felt, right? <laughs> yeah, some God we have, he makes this promise, and here we are down in Egypt, we're slave labor, and things are getting worse. There must not be a God, he must not exist, or if he does exist, he must not be good. We can't fall into that trap if we don't see things moving fast enough, or we think that they're you know, moving too fast, whatever it is, but we rest on the fact that God's timing for his faithful to deliver us, even the days of our lives, where we go as we trust in him and rest under him, that his timing is perfect. That's why chapter 2, 23 to 25, that little section broken apart in your English, uh, the English editors help us out. That little gloss is so important because it says after all these many days, the people are groaning, but then wonderfully, look at that last couple of words in verse 25. How refreshing is that? God knew. You see that? God knew. God always knows. So you're feeling a bit pushed around by politicians or by economic markets or people in your life or employers or whatever. You say, God knows. Not only does he know, look at the other verbs that are stacking up. God hears, he remembers, he sees. Glance down, chapter three, verse seven. God sees his people, he hears their cries, he knows and he delivers. God always sees and knows and hears and delivers his people on his good time. So you say you're thinking of the world in which we live. God's people can rest under his leadership. We can rest under his timing because he always gets it right. Even when it seems like such a long time, it's not a long time in his economy. Our job is to be faithful and trust his plan. Whatever you're going through, God knows. He hears, he sees, he remembers, and he delivers in Christ. So God's timing, God's timing is perfect for his faithful. Secondly, and crucially, God always initiates. The first thing you learn in, you know, Bible college, uh, hopefully, is that God initiates and humans respond. (laughs) So your theology gets very wobbly right out of the gate if you, if you get that inverted, right? You say, well, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and then God kinda gets on board with me and maybe he can come along for the ride. So your theology is never gonna be off to a good start. Rather to say, God does what he wants with his people and we obey him and come under him exactly as it, it happens here, verses two through four, right? God appearing in the burning bush that does not burn, he did that on his own initiative on this day. We could ask the question, well, why is Mo, you know, 40 years in Midian as a shepherd? You know, why not sooner? Why all this toil? Why is God doing this? We must only say that God is preparing his people and asking them to be faithful and to trust him until in his good time he initiates as he does with Moses. And then glance down at verse four. 
in this burning bush that doesn't burn, God called to him. I stress that word called because I think there's an opportunity for us, again, those of us who are thinking about these things, say, how do I get in a conversation with non-Christians about these types of things? Calling is a, a word that is tossed around a lot. You never talk, you know, say talking to somebody who's a naturalist, they don't believe in God at all, and they'll say, you know, I, I think I've found my calling. You say, that, I want to ask them, I say, well, who called you? Is it your boss? I mean, if so, that's really depressing. I mean, you needed some other person to validate your calling in life. You know, maybe you're, you think you're be-all, end-alls in another person. You say, calling to me always necessitates a capital C caller. Somebody outside the system who's reached down to you and say, this is what I want you to do. And say, for those of us who are in Christ, we, we find this, this makes sense to us, right? That there is a caller, capital C, who calls the faithful to a task. Now, I do believe, and again, you're thinking about how to get in conversation with this to a non-Christian person in the marketplace or another person in your neighborhood. The word vocation, right, we talk about a vocation, directly out of the Latin for the verb to call. I do think God places us in secular positions, right? Of course we believe that, that God has us in the times and the spheres that we're, we're in for a reason, to witness to the people around us. But what we must see is that the calling that comes to Moses to lead for God's sake is not entirely unlike the call that comes to every Christian, right? That there is a caller out there and he calls his people to be faithful and to bear witness to him. Now one step further on this uh, two to four, this idea of God initiating. Something to think about this week. Verse two, who is in the bush? Well, I said that's easy in verse two, right? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the one in the bush, but then you glance down to verse four. God called to him out of the bush. So the question that we raise here now is what is the relationship between the angel of the Lord and the Lord God? Now you can also, I think, get a little bit of help to say, well, angel, does that throw us off? Say the word angel really means messenger. So here you have the messenger of the Lord. And this is different. As you read the Old Testament, you're going to find other instances where an angel of the Lord, a singular angel of the Lord appears. So not here, an, an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. So who could be the messenger of the Lord in the bush who looks a lot like God and who in fact speaks as if he is God? Now, I would submit to you, as we've taken this up now three weeks in a row in the New Testament, that this is none other than a pre-incarnate appearing of the second person of the Trinity. So when Christians talk about the personhood of Jesus, right, the man Jesus coming in Bethlehem, right, what we celebrate at Christmas time, the personhood of the second person of the Trinity, there was a, never a time when that person didn't exist, right? I hope we're all on the same page of that, right? That the second person of the Trinity as God is an eternal being. There was a, never a time he didn't exist, and of course, in what we call the Old Testament, he did things because he's God. And here we have an instance where the messenger of the Lord appears in the burning bush speaking to Moses, which is exactly the way Jesus is going to speak in the, in the New Testament when he says, you know all that stuff, you know, Abraham and Moses? Yes, I was there. So the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, and if that excites you, I hope it does, we'll be spending our Advent series looking at these appearances of, of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. So God always initiates, his timing is perfect. Thirdly, notice God's holiness. That when God appears to Moses, 
one thing that he says is don't come near, take off your sandals for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now is the dirt in Midian special dirt? No, you'd say actually the dirt in Midian is, is not good dirt, it's very poor dirt. There's nothing inherent in the dirt in Midian that makes it holy. So what makes it holy? That God is there. And the fact that when we see these instances of people encountering the living God, that they tremble in fear, that to, to, to acknowledge God's holiness, it should be a big wake-up call to the church. God not our pal, God not a plaything, God not a riddler, but he's high and lifted up, he's holy other, as the theologians in the early 20th century like to say, he's holy other, he's not in this sequence of things. Think of this week, you're, you're troubled by circumstances and people, aren't you? You're just looking at it and say, wow, I got a lot of things, to, I got a lot of challenges this week and what's ahead of me, I got all this going on and people and personalities and things not working out and all this. Isn't it wonderful to see God's not in that system. He's wholly other. He, he's distinct. He's pure. Say, the one thing, the one word I wouldn't use for myself is holy or, or pure. Say, describe yourself. I, holy and pure would never come up uh, for me. I, I think polluted, uh, you know, filled with baggage, things like that. Say, those might be words that come to our mind. Thank goodness God is not like all this other stuff, but he's distinct. And that gives us hope. You know, a few weeks ago, you're looking out as I am, you got the Afghanistan thing, and you're watching that unfold, and you're thinking about inflation, and you're thinking about the political gridlock, and you have local news of the suicide, homicide in Avon Lake, and the children, and you're just like, Lord, I, we're, th this is getting worse. Uh, what's and you say, wait, let's come back to the biblical narrative, that it's a sin-filled creation because we've rebelled against God, but there's a good God who's pure and holy and holy other, who's working his purposes, and the faithful can have hope in who he is. And I hope that's our case today. God is not like other stuff, but he's high and lifted up. He's pure, he's holy, and he will have his way. Okay, let's move on then. So again, all coming out, Exodus chapter three. God's timing's perfect. He always initiates. We come under him. He's holy, he's different. He's not like other stuff. And then we get this exchange in verse 14, which we have to spend a little bit of time on. So Moses is commissioned and I think rightfully so, we'll get to it in a moment. He says, well, um, what am I, you know, here I am, I've been gone 40 years, I'm a shepherd, and I'm to go back and tell the people I'm their leader, and then I'm gonna go to the most powerful man in the Mediterranean world and tell them, yeah, we're out of here and, and you're gonna lose. So how, uh, how's this going to happen, God? Who, uh, let's first, I have to get buy-in from my own people, as if the rest isn't hard enough, but how am I gonna get buy-in from the Israelites that I'm to be commissioned as their leader? You gotta give me something, God. Tell, t tell me who I can tell them sent me. And verse 14, famous answer, right? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then he goes on to say, the Lord, the God of your forefathers, is sending you. Say, why does this settle the deal? I mean, it's a little bit of an odd exchange. You think, well, you know, if you're, mo well, the, that doesn't give me what, much, God, I mean, what, did I just get a business card that said I am on it, and now I'm to go tell the Israelites, you know, this is, this is my credential to, to lead you out? Say, no, I think what's happening here is this statement, I am who I am, is more or less God telling Moses, um, I'm the source of all being, Moses. You couldn't even ask the question without me 
uh, being over you in your care. I'm the one who sustains all life, that, that no matter what happens in this world, it's a result of who I am because I'm the source of all being. So here we are today, we're breathing because of God's kindness. I'm speaking because God is permitting me. You're listening because God is permitting you. And so it goes that God is the source of all being. He doesn't need other things to be who he is. That we say here there is no potency in God, that is he can't become anything other than what he already is because then he'd be showing improvement. We know God can't improve because he's already perfect as we said in the confession and God didn't make any mistakes. So he is always without change, he is who he is, he's entirely pure, he's not dependent on anything else. Now think how different it is how do you answer that question, I am blank, blank, blank? You say, I think there's the idealists and you know, the pessimists, so the idealists, well, I am who I'm, I'm becoming. Uh, I'm taking advantage of the opportunities and I'm pulling myself up and I, I am who I'm going to be, that we think in terms of a potency that's unmet. Or darker, but I think where many of us are, sadly, like the great playwright Eugene O'Neill, dystopian non-Christian playwright, right, that I am a product of my bad decisions. A scary place to be. I'm the product of my genetics. I'm the product of the mistakes I've made. I'm a product of my history. I am who I've, I've made myself to be in the past. See how God is unlike that. That he isn't who he's going to become because he can't become greater than what he already is and he didn't make any mistakes. He's not the product of historical chance as we might feel. Now again, think how different from us. Just take today. Say some of you, as soon as church is over, might be a little sad because church is over. I'm sad. We've got to wait another week to come together to church. You're a little sad, but then you remember you get to go to brunch and you're a little bit happy and you're happy when you order your, your special brunch, but brunch takes a little bit longer than you'd like, so you get a bit grumpy again, but then brunch comes and you really enjoy the brunch, but then after brunch you get a little bit sleepy and down you go, but then you remember the brownies are on and that's a good thing and up you go, but the brownies have a, a bad first half and down you go, but the brownies rebound in the second half and up you go, and then you remember, oh, it's Sunday night and I got the Sunday scaries and down you go. Say, this is just us on a Sunday afternoon, right? So aren't you happy and thankful and delighting in the fact that God isn't like that? That he's not dependent on this stuff? That, that he doesn't need anything? He doesn't get pushed around by anything? He's not up there wringing his hands, uh, you know, hope my team wins today. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a tough meeting. I got a tough Monday morning meeting. A little bit of the Sunday scaries up here. Say, no. No, and shame on us if we think he's like that. Say, God's timing is perfect for his people. He's self-existent and holy. He initiates. He doesn't need anything. He's working his purposes. And beyond all this, you say, these are rather attributes, you say, you know, God exalted. But as I was talking to Pastor Ian, who helped me see this this week, say, this passage is, shows God is wonderfully tender too, doesn't it? That he's the God who makes promises, He's a God who speaks, which in antiquity say, who are the gods? Well, the gods were the idols. They say the idols don't speak, the idols are mute. We have a speaking God. He's spoken to us in his word. His word penetrates our hearts, that we read the book and the book comes alive. Why? Because God speaks. He's unlike inanimate idols, that he remembers his people. You notice verse four, isn't it wonderful? Moses, Moses. Say Acts nine, Saul, Saul. God knows the names of his people. He knows the hairs, or increasingly, in my case, back here, fewer hairs. Say, it's not the ministry, it's my own doing. So uh, he knows the hairs on our head. He knows your name. He makes promises. He speaks, and he cares. 
and he will deliver. Now you've gotten some systematic theology here and I ask you, does this make any difference in your week? You say, maybe you do. I did read about the Sunday scaries. That's a real thing tonight. You say, I get a big week ahead. You say, I hope that this God is the most practical thing in your life. God knows what he's doing. He's got me in this job for a reason. I'm to be faithful here. I can't do anything beyond what God has ordained. He's holy. My hope is in him. He's not dependent upon my performance, but has condescended kindly in Jesus in his grace to say, I can rest in that. I can operate with that. So that's the point. The, who God is, who God is in Exodus 3 informs how we think and behave that we can be under him, having hope in him, acknowledging him, that he cares, that he's with us, that he's won, and he will win the victory. Okay, Moses' response, a little bit of time here now. Moses, firstly, I, I think this is important before we get into the response. Notice what he's doing when God appears to him. 3 verse 1. What's he doing? Well, he's working for his father-in-law, which some of us would say, is that, that is a tough go, isn't it? Well, this, some of us work for our father-in-laws, but uh, so he's working for his father-in-law. He's doing the same thing he did for 40 years. That's the point. You say, well, maybe I need to go to a special place, and maybe I need to go through some special motions, and if I go through the special motions, I can manufacture an experience from God and, and have a kind of spiritual high Say, no, Moses is being faithful in what would ordinarily see a mundane job. As, you know, let's be, you know, this week we're going to go back to our tasks as nurses and as teachers and as churchmen. And we're going to probably do this week a lot what we've done every single week. But you know what? God honors that. We talked about doing our jobs with excellence, about being obedient, about trusting God. And it's there, right? He will have his way. And he speaks to us in the normal routines of life as he does Moses. Now, Moses' response, verse 11, I don't blame him. God who am I that I'm this guy to do this? I can't possibly do this. And Moses, in a word, probably requires more time than we have. But Moses here is the reluctant leader, isn't he? He's had this experience of the burning bush. He can't deny it. And yet, in his own spirit, there's a bit of a check to say, I, I can't be that guy. And I hope, in a way, every Christian's a little bit like this reluctant leader to say, yeah, the calling as... Denny and Steve have prayed this morning, say the task before us is immense. We have a church family to care for, that we have families to care for, we have jobs to do, there's a world to evangelize. The task is so immense. God, I know you've called me to do it, but how, am I pos- how can I possibly do it? Well, the answer comes three different things, right? What's important is not Moses' qualifications, he's eminently unqualified. Um, not his credentials, not his qualifications, but what matters, verses 10 and 15, God's sending Moses. There's a commissioning. I am sending you. Not because of how clever you are, not because you're better than the others, but I am sending you because you are my instrument to bring about my purposes in my good time. God sends Moses. Verse 12, wonderfully, right? How do you meet this objection? God, I can't do it. God says, but I'll be with you. (laughs) Doesn't matter because I am with you. How refreshing. In verse three, God promises the victory. That's the last part of our chapter. Not only are the Israelites going to be uh, liberated out of this land and given victory in the promised land, but they're even going to plunder the Egyptians, and this is a settled deal. So what matters, again, Moses, the reluctant leader, uh, comes uh, with humility, as I hope every Christian leader does in the daunting task that we have, but what matters is that God sends Moses, he'll be with Moses, and the victory is going to be won. Now you think of those, if you're a Christian. Don't those three things come to you as well? You've been sent, 
the Great Commission. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Go into all the world, make disciples that we've been sent and commissioned. We don't need any more letters of recommendation than that. God sends his faithful out with a mission. He promises to be with us, and the victory's been won in Jesus. You say, that is a great way to think about my response and my duty. There's a great God up there. He sent me, he's commissioned me, the victory's won, and now my task is to be obedient uh, to what he's called me to do. Now finally, and again, I know so much to think about here, but John chapter eight, we fast forwarded now in our Bibles, but also 1,450 years. 1,450 years later, this Galilean carpenter, who's creating a stir, is in a debate with the Jewish leaders. And uh, what he says then is that before Abraham was, I am to the Jewish leaders. Now we just read Exodus 3. Now all these Jewish scholars, what did they hear? They heard Exodus 3 in verse 14. Jesus is saying before Abraham even, right, way back before Moses, even before Abraham, I am. And he uses the name that God uses to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 3, 14. You say, this is a clear claim to deity, that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist, that everything God the Father has in his divine essence, so also does Jesus have. And of course, this is exactly how the Jews hear this, because what do they do? They, they try to stone him, which is the penalty in the Pentateuch for claiming to be God. So Jesus clearly puts himself in Exodus chapter 3. He goes even before that, right? God, I was there. You say, look at how the Bible seamlessly fits together that God is redeeming a people for himself in Exodus. He reveals himself as the one that's the source of all existence, and he's put forth Jesus in history, right? The same one who was there with Moses in Exodus chapter three, he's put forth in history, and he says, come unto me because I am this God, and I've won the victory. Friends, you're not a Christian here today. I always, every Sunday we have non-Christians, I know, because I meet you between services, or somebody says, I'm bringing my non-Christian friend, and you're thinking about all this. You say, you might be in that camp at the very beginning. You say, I think there's a God out there. It must be something, but um, can't know him. Or um, an impersonal force. Or my friend. I hope today you see that there is a God on high. That he's working his purposes that he's put his only begotten son into history, right? To say, you know, I'm buying back this people for myself and all of our sinfulness and our rebellion and all the wrath that we've incurred from the just judgment of God, right? In his perfection and this holiness, how can we possibly be right with a holy God like the one in Exodus 3? Oh, through his son, Jesus. You know, you're thinking even this week, things you've said. Say, yeah, I wish I could take a mulligan on that. It's out there cut a corner here, used your body in a way you know wasn't the most honoring way. Say, well, maybe it'll just, over time, kind of forget about it. You say, it doesn't work that way, does it? I need somebody to make me right with this holy and pure God. Somebody who recognizes my sinfulness and knows that I need grace. You see that in the person of Jesus, the great I am. That he's come in history to buy us back, to put us right with God, and to set us on mission. And for the people of God this week, let's not act as if we don't believe in this God or that we don't know him. Say, we of all people should rest under him, to do his bidding, to obey, to delight in him, 
knowing again that he is going to prevail and that his people are victorious and that he will use us in our faithfulness to build his kingdom now and into eternity. So I'll invite Jim back up and we'll uh, sing this uh, last great hymn together. Lord, I, I picture Moses there working his flock as this week we're gonna be going, uh, going back to our offices or into our neighborhoods and we're gonna be doing the same thing that we're always doing. Help us to remember your call to be on mission, to go make disciples, that you're holy and pure and you strengthen us and you're working your purposes and, and help us to believe that with all of our hearts, that it's one story in scripture. And for those who are here that don't know you through Jesus, that Lord, by your spirit, that you would prompt them to see you in your majesty for who you really are, to see how much you care for us and Jesus is your chosen instrument to redeem your people. So Lord, have your way among us. Make us be a church that faithfully knows who you are and proclaims who you are and lives in light of who you are for your sake. Amen.